Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. It's Sunday. I was off the last couple days, so apologies for that. So I'm making it up to you guys with a little uh, Sunday episode here. So it's cold, but sunny here. So, you know, pick your poison. And I got some good skiing in this week. It's been beautiful back in the Reno Tahoe area. I was down in Mammoth for a few days, and here we are. This morning, we had Argentina win the World Cup beating France. I only watched a little bit of it just because, to be honest, <laughs> both teams are not for me. I Pretty much I lost interest once Spain, the U.S., and Morocco, and Croatia all lost. But Messi finally has his World Cup, and he can check that off the list. That was kind of the big thing that was always evading him. So I guess if you're Messi, you're probably quite happy today. I want to just start by talking about one of the elephants in the room, and that's the Trump trading card slash digital trading card NFT BS. <laughs> For a week, I'd been hearing that Trump was going to make an announcement, and I'm like, oh, cool. Maybe he's going to say he's not running. Maybe he's going to announce his VP. Maybe it's going to be something important. But instead, he announced his NFT superhero trading cards, and I'm sure by now most of you that follow politics have seen these, but they're <laughs> they're pretty pretty unique. I mean, there's one of him, probably my favorite one of him is like he's in a cowboy hat with a gun. There's another one where he's like a Superman look. There's another one where he's like riding a horse. I mean, there's some really, really quality ones out there. And if I wasn't giving money to Trump, I would kind of almost want to buy a pack, just to either troll someone or just laugh at them. Maybe I can buy them from a secondhand source eventually, but... I don't know what the guy's thinking. And so anyways, CNN noted, and I think this was pretty good, in quotes, it says, the former president's hyped up major announcement turned out to be a set of digital trading cards for $99 a pop. They sparked widespread mockery from late night hosts to even some Trump loyalists like Michael Flynn and Steve Bannon. And when Michael Flynn and Steve Bannon are making fun of you, yeah, I mean, maybe you should reconsider some things in your life. <laughs> but honestly, it seems like also Trump just timed the market very poorly with this because I was seeing in Crypto Slam, which is like a crypto database, and it said uh, total NFT volume last month was down practically 90% from its peak in January. So sounds like Trump. Of course, I don't think Trump even knows what NFTs are. Most of the people that are his base probably don't know what NFTs are. So it's kind of funny that he's going down this road of purchasing them, but hey, whatever. Hey, whatever, you know. And I do think there's something kind of refreshing about this. Maybe this is my unpopular opinion, but instead of, you know, the big lie or all the craziness or meeting with neo-Nazis or whatever else he does or planning to throw a, overthrow an election, now he's back to just selling stupid things that are kind of not like taking people's money from his packs for his own good or anything. It's just selling trading cards. So... It's somewhat fitting, right? It's, it's a little bit less nefarious. Now, I don't know if this looks like a guy who's serious about running for president. I mean, it's almost like he's trying to self-sabotage himself. But then again, he also has a big ego. So I don't really know what his end game here is. But I think we're going to have an entertaining year and a half or whatever until the midterms or until the presidential election. Sorry. So it'll be fun. And I think it was Jonathan Last on the Secret podcast on Friday for The Bulwark who said that it seems like Trump is in his fat Elvis phase or his late stage Elvis moment. And I kind of alluded to that last week too, you know, where he's kind of DJing at Mar-a-Lago and going around and talking to guests. He's definitely kind of in that fat Elvis phase and I'm phase, sorry, and I'm kind of here for it. It's kind of entertaining. 
Moving on though, uh, because it's Sunday, I wanted to do one of these episodes that somewhat diverges from current events and more focuses on some different political theories, historical ideas that, that of course can be related back to things that are happening in the U.S. And in this case, I want to look into reactionary populism and growing illiberalism around the world. And then I want to kind of discuss how these do compare to fascism and go into some of the misconceptions about fascism that I think must be understood because a lot of people and somewhat myself included are worried about fascism and over the last few years I've really tried to read everything I can find on it and I guess I would say that I'm fascinated in it it's definitely one of my like interests not because I'm a fascist but because I'm interested in kind of how to define it how it comes and how we can kind of stop it from also being quite a successful movement in some places and so I'm doing this episode to pose the question, are reactionary populists, fascists, and illiberals the same thing? Or are there differences? Or are there maybe different stages of extremism? So that's kind of what I want to look at. And I guess I'll start with the spoiler, is that they're not completely the same, but there are features that are comparable. And we're just going to kind of have a discussion here and try to compare and contrast these. So to start, I will be the first to admit that I have used the F word, the fascism word, for when I thought about people like, say, Steve Bannon or Curtis Yarvin or Jair Bolsonaro or Viktor Orban or whatever else, Trump, I guess, could fall into this category. Marjorie Taylor Greene, maybe Tucker Carlson if we're naming people, right? But I used to think of these people as somewhat on the fascist scale or at least fascist adjacent. However, I guess over time, I've started to consider them as something different. And it's kind of what I want to start with here is that I think they're more like these reactionary right-wing populists. And the term reactionary has been around for a long time. But I think we are seeing kind of a new form of reactionary populism that does kind of morph into illiberalism as well. And I'll get into fascism more lately, but I think fascism itself is more of a movement that focuses on social change, but it's with a nationalist grandeur. And it's also usually this anti-party that actually wants to take over the state and politics. And it's more appealing to the elites and the rich. And I guess the difference with some of these movements, such as Trumpism or Bolsonaro in Brazil, or wherever else you want to look that has this happening, is that these movements do not share the traits of fascism's distaste for national politics as much, or the distrust in political parties as much. Instead, it seems like reactionary populists seem to be merely against anything that is deemed progress or social progress, and they kind of want to create a new state that's against this elitism or progress. And in fact, you know, this movement is new to the United States, but it's really been quite prevalent in Europe for decades, and I, I mean kind of this right-wing populism. And the, the movement is less imperialistic and focused on grandeur and cutting down excess, all, all the things that fascism was kind of focused on. It's instead more angry at progressivism, changing social dynamics, political elites, and a status quo that isn't working for them. And there's a good journal article from the Journal of Policy History from Penn State, and it's by Ronald uh, Formisano. And he writes here in quotes, During the 1980s and 1990s in countries across the globe, new populist protest movements and radical political organizations emerged to challenge traditional parties, ruling elites, and professional politicians, and even longstanding social norms. The, the revolts against politics as usual have arisen from many kinds of social groupings and from diverse points on the political spectrum. Later in the article, he also notes here in quotes, But at the end of the Cold War, particularly in Europe, it unleashed a torrent of popular movements and political parties opposed to what the discontented perceived as the corruption and deceitfulness of the political class and their corporate patrons. 
Some protest movements promoted more democracy, pluralism, and economic opportunity. Some expressed intolerance, bigotry, and xenophobic nationalism. And I think this is a good insight because, of course, we know that these kind of anti-establishment movements can come out of very different sides of the political spectrum, and that's something always kind of worth including when you talk about this. But I think in Europe specifically, you've seen kind of a backlash that's led to this kind of right-wing reactionaryism. And I think an interesting insight in this article is that the author notes that there's been a rush by many scholars, especially in the like 90s and 2000s, to compare these movements under one lens, call them racist and maybe even fascist, because they talk about how, for example, like Adolf Hitler was somewhat of a reactionary, he was somewhat of a populist. But the author kind of implies that these assumptions are not always true. And that, as I kind of alluded to, Reactionaries do diverge from traditional fascism or racism, and it's more a, a kind of xenophobia and anti-establishment rhetoric. And one of the ways I almost think of reactionary populism is that it's almost extreme contrarianism, contrarianism sorry, to almost everything progressives and leftists and establishment types want. And that's why, you know, I, I've kind of said there's multiple different parties in the United States right now. You kind of have the establishment types who are both center-right and center-left. You have kind of the progressives on the far left, and then you kind of have these right-wing reactionaries that are kind of the inverse of, of progressives, right? And for example, in the United States, as the countries become more accepting of non-binary individuals, for example, you have seen this just strong backlash that's been the most identified on the reactionary right about, you know, trans athletes and all this stuff. And you have the more reactionary right-wingers just that are completely like making the, all of their rhetoric about this, focusing pretty much all of it on this instead of policy, right? I think this was also prevalent with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, because while he is definitely a nationalist as well and not really totally reactionary, he is, an, he is somewhat of a reactionary to the extent that he's against social change, progressivism, openness. You see that with his kind of war on everything from like open society to homophobia and all that. And I think this is why a lot of the reactionary right in the United States have accepted him because he's very like toxic masculinity, very against social change. And the reactionaries like that. And, you know, while conservatives of the past have always been hesitant towards change and try to be a bulwark against radical change and maybe change that happens too abruptly, reactionaries are more worried about Sorry, let me rephrase. Reactionaries are not worried about hesitancy. They just kind of seem to oppose the status quo altogether. And sometimes I guess maybe that's a good bulwark, but usually it just comes off as aggravating, I think. And I also think this is why the culture war has been, you know, exacerbated uh, during the Trump era. It seems like reactionaries are focused on culture wars instead of governance, right? This is why Viktor Orban could go to the CPAC and agree with Ted Cruz on the traditional family and banding transgender athletes and all that. These are now global ideas that are being shared by the reactionaries. I guess if you really wanted to pinpoint reactionaryism on the right, it's kind of they've adopted negative identity politics that are just reactive to everything the left has done. And it's kind of made it so they don't get anything done, right? And we've seen that, especially in kind of the Trump era, is that there's not a lot of effective governance that really comes out of these forms of ideas. And kind of going further from reactionary populism here is I do think illiberalism, which is another term we're going to briefly touch on today, I think it does go hand in hand with this form of right-wing populism. There's a good book that I've, I've read some parts of. I haven't actually read the whole thing, but I've read some chapters out of, and it's called 
uh, The Rise of a Liberalism by Thomas Maine. And he writes in the book, A liberalism is the basic repudiation of liberal democracy, the very foundation on which the United States rests. It says no to electoral democracy, human rights, the rule of law, toleration. It is a political ideology that finds expression in such older right-wing groups such as the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists, and more recently along the alt-right and the dark enlightenment. There are also center-of-left liberal movements, including various forms of communism, anarchism, and some anti-fascist movements. And I think the Dark Enlightenment, too, I should just note, is kind of a reactionary movement as well. That's kind of like Curtis, Curtis Yarvin's a big, uh, big member of that. But anyways, as I mentioned earlier, reactionaries are angry at the political establishment, dist distrust how modern politics functions, and I think this leads to the embrace of a liberalism. And like, like that quote I read said, you also see this on the left, right? You see a lot of like more communist movements through history also not believe in elections, but just a one-state party, right? And so one could argue, though, that liberal democracy's failures to deal with many of our social problems has kind of created a safe space for a liberalism to grow, right? And to promote their own brand of kind of this cultural rot, right? And... I think the most obvious places we've seen liberalism grow, especially right-wing liberalism, is in places like Hungary. You know, Viktor Orban comes to power through elections and then tries to get rid of free and fair elections. Like, people think there's elections, but they're really not happening, and there's a control, and the party kind of maintains power permanently, right? And one could argue, I guess, to an extent this is happening in the United States, but at a much slower rate, and I don't think it's as bad off yet, of course. But I think reactionaryism... I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to use it. I think it kind of leads into a liberalism, and they kind of go hand in hand, right? Because reactionaries don't agree with the status quo, and they seem to— Like, I think a lot of reactionaries also like the idea of a monarch. They like the idea of kind of a strongman leader, which is very different from, like, conservative, small-L liberalism values. And now, while I think that reactionary populism and liberalism are not the same as fascism, like, directly— I do think both are kind of warning signs on the road to fascism, I guess would be the best way I would try to put it. And what I mean here is that fascism seems to succeed when there's some sort of opening for the movement due to state failures or democratic institutions failing or not providing the services that people need. Kind of an institutional rot. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's pretty much known by most people at this point that a lot of our liberal democracies and capital systems are failing to deliver some of the services that people need, right? Inequality is not great, and there's just some really big issues in open societies. And so I think as things get worse, negative identity politics, reactionary rhetoric, and radical liber illiberalism can lead to fascism if the movement has the right window to operate in. Basically, if there's a window of opportunity that is is viable to basically rip open and change everything. And I would probably argue that fascism needs unique conditions to succeed, which are not really prevalent, thank God, in the United States at this moment. But there, of course, are warning signs, so you can't just, like, ignore it, I guess. And I want to spend the rest of this going into some thoughts on fascism from my recent readings, research, things I've listened to, because I think it's important because... There's while there's warning signs, it's also important to know what fascism is not and what it is and why we should maybe not worry yet, but also be aware. And I've been very engrossed in a fascinating book called The Anatomy of Fascism by Robert O. Paxton. 
And I believe that the book came out in the early 2000s, but it's probably one of the most comprehensive books on the subject that I've really ever engaged with. And instead of focusing on the early days of Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy, which he does, but it's not all of it, Paxton tries to add more philosophical framework to the actual movement. And I guess one of the key takeaways that I've really internalized about the movement is that a big misconception about it is that it's hyper-capitalist. It's kind of like a late-stage form of capitalism or an evolution of capitalism. And it can become that over time just due to alliances and because it tend, because fascists tend to find allies with the capitalist system. But in, in reality, early on, fascism was kind of anti-capitalist, anti-elite, but also anti-communist. So maybe that's why eventually it did become a capitalist movement. And... Early on, especially in the early 20th century, the movement was highly critical of the excesses of capitalism and just kind of the excesses of society. It's very traditional based. I think that's maybe where it diverges from like a communism, but it wasn't directly like in support of capitalism. And I think it was also, I think being more than anti-capitalist, it was also anti-democratic as well. And in a sense, it seems more like fascism is a divergence from liberalism and from the Enlightenment era than it is of anything else. I think that's what you see is it's kind of a divergent from history that we knew coming into the last like 200 years. And I think going off of that, fascism is almost like a rich man's communism. And while it's like the antithesis to communism, the opposite side of the coin, it has some parallels to how the party would function and take power in society. And I think a great point that Paxton makes is that while political parties are mainly middle class or try to appeal to the middle class, fascism appeals to the upper class and to the elites. And it basically tries to unite the people over the state. Now, I think one could assume that the people is a very broad term and can be dangerous, as we've seen, because when you're talking about uniting a people instead of political parties, there's something uniquely dangerous about that if it's misused, which it was. But that's kind of the idea is it wants to supersede political parties. And I think, I think fascism has been able to flourish in specific scenarios and in specific places due to the prevalence of a red scare or a perception that communism is dangerous and will rule, rule or ruin a country and take the elites out of power. And this is something somewhat different from, say, reactionaryism, where there is kind of a desire to get the elites out of power. In this case, the elites want to maintain power. And Paxton noted in the book that fascism would likely not exist without the state already having influence or the existence of socialists or communists. And as I said earlier, fascism, according to Paxton, is kind of a social change with national grandeur, with this nationalist movement. This, of course, has ties to like militarism, the nation state, imperial forces. That's why, you know, Mussolini was always focused on bringing back the Roman Empire and all this jazz Spain, you know, under Franco wanted to go back to the Spanish Empire days, right? And I think that this leads to their distaste of communists and leftists because after World War I, for example, in Germany, fascists disliked socialists in places like Germany and Italy because they were anti-nationalists and opposed the war. And so you had a lot of disgruntled generals who kind of were more on the right, who really distasted what the communists and socialists did in, pro in protesting the wars, for example. And I think going further into that, a lot of capitalists and moderates in these societies also so saw fascism as kind of a bulwark against their probably over-exaggerated fears of socialism. And this is where you see business leaders and moderates willing to align with fascism 
obviously as the road got worse down the road in the you know 30s and 40s there was a shift from that but i think early on people saw the fascists as a worthwhile ally against their perception of a red scare and i do think there are warning signs here in the us when you do have these overinflated fears of socialism and it's pushing people on the right to ally with with some of these more troubling reactionaries you know, one has to wonder if some of these organizations and think tanks are just becoming inadvertent fascists by accident because they're so afraid of this over-exaggerated perception of the left, basically. And that seems to happen. Is like there's a, a misunderstanding of the other side, I think, that's also somewhat important here. And moving into the actual policy side, I guess you could say, of fascism and how the movement gets into power, I think something to remember about fascism is that Usually it seems like the power comes first and then the policies or doctrine kind of follow, come later, I guess you could say. And Paxton notes that fascism has a unique relationship with doctrine. And I think, I mean, not to over-exaggerate it, but that is something kind of true with the MAGA movement as well. Also true of reactionary populism, right? We have to remember that, you know, Trump gets elected with some kind of talking points, but nothing super specific, I guess, on what he was actually going to do. And... Then, once he was in power, then there were policy institutes that popped up over the last four or five years to try and create doctrine to go along with the guy. So I think that's something interesting is that you have the power first and then the ideas come next, which I would say is not a great way to run a country, but that's, of course, what kind of seemed to happen. I think that's also why you see sometimes in these movements that it's the it's basically like the dog finally catches up to the car or the train runs off the tracks or, you know, the frog in boiling water type of thing. Like, it's really easy for things to go south. And moving on, though, I think the more fascinating, but I guess you could say troubling part of fascism is that it's almost an anti-party that looks to erode elections. It doesn't really believe in elections. It wants to erode political parties and instead create a movement that becomes the state. This goes back to what I said earlier about how it basically tries to unite a people. Now, of course, like I said, a people is kind of a tough term and can lead to consequences, but it's an interesting insight. And I would argue that fascism only succeeds if the movement does become basically this anti-party that consumes the state, ends elections, and kind of becomes, the state becomes the party, right? And if it fails, I, yeah, I actually know this is kind of interesting too, is I, I think that if fascism fails, it's because part of the system that it was meant to consume, right? And so what I mean is that this is why I don't think like the Stop the Steal MAGA movement is really fascist, but just kind of reactionary. Of course, the movement, you know, has eroded trust in elections and clearly wanted to keep Donald in power. But it also was just part of our multi-party system and was checked by that. I feel like if these types of movements are elected into office, they basically have one term to succeed in changing the system and eroding the institutions. That can be definitely seen with what Orban did in Hungary, for example. But... If they do not erode the institutions and change the system and consolidate power into the party, they kind of get voted out. And we saw that kind of happen in the United States, right? And it happened in France. That's why fascism never really went off the rails in France like it did in other parts in the 30s. And I guess the point is, is that a fascist movement is not really designed to keep winning elections. It must get elected and then get rid of fair elections. And if it cannot do this, it fails. And I think that's also one of the overlaps with the liberalism, but that's also why there's not that many examples of it working is because it's supposed to change the system, 
but sometimes it just becomes part of the system and that can make it dwindle. Now, obviously in places like Germany after the Weimar Republic, the opposite happened, right? It did consume the entire system. So in general though, I think this is one reason that fascism to me is not this pressing threat in the United States right now. It's just because while our democracy is definitely not as strong as it once was, as I would like it to be, we do have fairly robust institutions and we do have many checks on power that make it kind of almost difficult for some sort of seizure of power. And of course, we have services that are lacking. Inequality, like I said, is not good. But we are not like a Weimar Republic era or Mussolini or pre-Mussolini Italy, right? And I think it's just hard for, for fascism to succeed in a democracy unless it's really weak and the institutional rot has already set in. And I ultimately just think that the United States is experiencing more of this right-wing populism that Europe has experienced for decades. Of course, it's not good in one of the wealthiest and largest countries in the world having this happen, but I think that's what it is. And this does stem from a lot of the excesses of capitalism that has left many behind, right? The growth of globalization, social change, shifting population dynamics, demographics. I, I think that really does all play into it. But I don't think we're quite to the point where it's actually troubling yet, but there are definitely warning signs, and it's something to note. But I I used to be a little bit more like, raise the alarm, it's happening. But I, I, I think that there's just so many specific circumstances that need to happen first, and we just need to understand that we have reactionary populism and a liberalism kind of sweeping the world right now. And I think that's a good word for it. And I guess the best way to kind of try to combat these issues is to have an educated population and also to start looking at how we can actually help people in society. That doesn't mean communism either. It doesn't mean like state spending, but it does mean adopting maybe the Nordic model where you do allow hyper-capitalism, but you also highly invest in the public sector. Taxes are higher, but people get more. Maybe you have a flat tax, which I always support, but you cut out capital gains and just make it earned income. You make everyone pay the same, even billionaires. Of course, that's pie in the sky. Probably will never happen. But I think you need to start having reforms so that people are happy in society and cannot get radicalized. Of course, there will always be issues, but it seems like fascism usually seems to start when there's a lot of rot and a lot of anger, and I, I would hope we'd learn from that. So I don't know. I, I just think it's we live in very fascinating times. That would be the main thing I would say here, and it's just interesting to see what's happening next, but I don't think we should be freaking out too soon. But I, I do have to, you know, reach out or call out some of the, you know, the think tanks on the right, the policy institutions on the right that are so worried about this perception of Marxism. Like, I, I know one that's starting in California, for example, and, you know, they, there's a lot of fears about, you know, the left socialist agenda, and it just doesn't exist. And I think when you're so afraid that that's happening, you're willing to kind of become an inadvertent reactionary to everything, even when it doesn't exist. So... Anyways, have a great rest of your Sunday. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Adios.